Section 6 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Viblen. Third part of Chapter 3 Conspicuous Leisure. If the pecuniary situation of the master permitted, the development of a special class of personal or body servants is also furthered by the very grave importance which comes to attach to this personal service. The master's person, being the embodiment of worth and honor, is of the most serious consequence, both for his reputable standing in the community and for his self-respect, it is a matter of moment that he should have at his call efficient specialized servants, whose attendance upon his person is not diverted from this, their chief office, by any by-occupation. These specialized servants are useful more for show than for service actually performed. In so far as they are not capped for exhibition simply, they afford gratification to their master chiefly in allowing scope to his propensity for dominance. It is true, the care of the continually increasing household apparatus may require added labor, but since the apparatus is commonly increased in order to serve as a means of good repute rather than as a means of comfort, this qualification is not of great weight. All these lines of utility are better served by a large number of more highly specialized servants. There results, therefore, a constantly increasing differentiation and multiplication of domestic and body servants, along with a concomitant progressive exemption of such servants from productive labor. By virtue of their serving as evidence of ability to pay, the office of such domestics regularly tends to include continually fewer duties, and their service tends, in the end, to become nominal only. This is especially true of those servants who are in most immediate and obvious attendance upon their master, so that the utility of these comes to consist, in great part, in their conspicuous exemption from productive labor, and in the evidence which this exemption affords of their master's wealth and power. After some considerable advance has been made, in the practice of employing a special corps of servants for the performance of a conspicuous leisure in this manner, men begin to be preferred above women for services that bring them obtrusively into view. Men, especially lusty, personable fellows, such as footmen and other menials should be, are obviously more powerful and more expensive than women. They are better fitted for this work as showing a larger waste of time and of human energy. Hence, it comes about that in the economy of the leisure class, the busy housewife of the early patriarchal days, with her retinue of hard-working handmaidens, presently gives place to the lady and the lackey. In all grades and walks of life, and at any stage of the economic development, the leisure of the lady and of the lackey differs from the leisure of the gentleman in his own right, in that it is an occupation of an ostensibly laborious kind. It takes the form, in large measure, of a painstaking attention to the service of the master, or to the maintenance and elaboration of the household paraphernalia, so that it is leisure 
only in the sense that little or no productive work is performed by this class, not in the sense that all appearance of labor is avoided by them. The duties performed by the lady or by the household or domestic servants are frequently arduous enough, and they are also frequently directed to ends which are considered extremely necessary to the comfort of the entire household. So far as these services conduce to the physical efficiency or comfort of the master or the rest of the household, they are to be accounted productive work. Only the residue of employment left after deduction of this effective work is to be classed as a performance of leisure. But much of the services classed as household cares in modern everyday life, and many of the utilities required for a comfortable existence by civilized men, are of a ceremonial character. They are, therefore, properly to be classed as a performance of leisure in the sense in which the term is here used. They may be nonetheless imperatively necessary from the point of view of decent existence. They may be nonetheless requisite for personal comfort even, although they may be chiefly or wholly of a ceremonial character. But in so far as they partake of this character, they are imperative and requisite, because we have been taught to require them under pain of ceremonial uncleanness or unworthiness. We feel discomfort in their absence, but not because their absence results directly in physical discomfort, nor would a taste not trained to discriminate between the conventionally good and the conventionally bad take offense at their omission. In so far as this is true, the labor spent in these services is to be classed as leisure, and when performed by others than the economically free and self-directed head of the establishment, they are to be classed as vicarious leisure. The vicarious leisure performed by housewives and menials, under the head of household cares, may frequently develop into drudgery, especially where the competition for reputability is close and strenuous. This is frequently the case in modern life. Where this happens, the domestic service, which comprises the duties of this servant class, might aptly be designed as wasted effort, rather than as vicarious leisure. But the latter term has the advantage of indicating the line of derivation of these domestic offices, as well as of neatly suggesting the substantial economic ground of their utility, for these occupations are chiefly useful as a method of imputing pecuniary reputability to the master or to the household, on the ground that a given amount of time and effort is conspicuously wasted in that behalf. In this way, then, there arises a subsidiary or derivative leisure class, whose office is the performance of a vicarious leisure for the behoof of the reputability of the primary or legitimate leisure class. This vicarious leisure class is distinguished from the leisure class proper by a characteristic feature of its habitual mode of life. The leisure of the master class is, at least ostensibly, an indulgence of a proclivity for the avoidance of labor, and is presumed to enhance the master's own well-being and fullness of life. But the leisure of the servant class, exempt from productive labor, is in some sort a performance exacted from them, and is not normally or primarily directed to their own comfort. The leisure of the servant is not his own leisure. So far as he is a servant in the full sense, and not at the same time a member of a lower order of the leisure class proper, his leisure normally passes under the guise of specialized service 
directed to the furtherance of his master's fullness of life. Evidence of this relation of subservience is obviously present in the servant's carriage and manner of life. The like is often true of the wife throughout the protracted economic stage during which she is still primarily a servant, that is to say, so long as the household with a male head remains in force. In order to satisfy the requirements of the leisure class scheme of life, the servant should show not only an attitude of subservience, but also the effects of special training and practice in subservience. The servant or wife should not only perform certain offices and show a servile disposition, but it is quite as imperative that they should show an acquired facility in the tactics of subservience, a trained conformity to the canons of effectual and conspicuous subservience. Even today, it is this aptitude and acquired skill in the formal manifestation of the servile relation that constitutes the chief element of utility in our highly paid servants, as well as one of the chief ornaments of the well-bred housewife. The first requisite of a good servant is that he should conspicuously know his place. It is not enough that he knows how to effect certain desired mechanical results. He must, above all, know how to effect these results in due form. Domestic service might be said to be a spiritual rather than a mechanical function. Gradually there grows up an elaborate system of good form, specifically regulating the manner in which this vicarious leisure of the servant class is to be performed. Any departure from these canons of form is to be depreciated, not so much because it evinces a shortcoming in mechanical efficiency, or even that it shows an absence of the servile attitude and temperament, but because, in the last analysis, it shows the absence of special training. Special training in personal service costs time and effort, and where it is obviously present in a high degree, it argues that the servant who possesses it neither is nor has been habitually engaged in any productive occupation. It is prima facie evidence of a vicarious leisure extending far back in the past, so that trained service has utility not only as gratifying the master's instinctive liking for good and skillful workmanship and his propensity for conspicuous dominance over those whose lives are subservient to his own, but it has utility also as putting in evidence a much larger consumption of human service than would be shown by the mere present conspicuous leisure performed by an untrained person. It is a serious grievance if a gentleman's butler or footman performs his duties about his master's stable or carriage in such unformed style as to suggest that his habitual occupation may be ploughing or sheepherding. Such bungling work would imply inability on the master's part to procure the service of specially trained servants. That is to say, it would imply inability to pay for the consumption of time, effort and instruction required to fit a trained servant for special service under the exacting code of forms. If the performance of the servant argues lack of means on the part of his master, it defeats its chief substantial end, for the chief use of servants is the evidence they afford of the master's ability to pay. What has just been said might be taken to imply that the offense of an undertrained servant lies in a direct suggestion of inexpensiveness or of usefulness. 
Such, of course, is not the case. The connection is much less immediate. What happens here is what happens generally. Whatever proves itself to us on any ground at the outset presently comes to appeal to us as a gratifying thing in itself. It comes to rest in our habits of thought as substantially right. But in order that any specific canon of deportment shall maintain itself in favor, it must continue to have the support of, or at least not be incompatible with, the habit or aptitude which constitutes the norm of its development. The need of vicarious leisure or conspicuous consumption of service is a dominant incentive to the keeping of servants. So long as this remains true, it may be set down without much discussion that any such departure from accepted usage as would suggest an abridged apprenticeship in service would presently be found unsufferable. The requirement of an expensive vicarious leisure acts indirectly, selectively, by guiding the formation of our taste, of our sense of what is right in these matters, and so weeds out unconformable departures by withholding approval of them. As the standard of wealth recognized by common consent advances, the possession and exploitation of servants as a means of showing superfluity undergoes a refinement. The possession and maintenance of slaves employed in the production of goods argues wealth and prowess, but the maintenance of servants who produce nothing argues still higher wealth and position. Under this principle, there arises a class of servants, the more numerous the better, whose sole office is fatuously to wait upon the person of their owner, and so to put in evidence his ability unproductively to consume a large amount of service. There supervenes a division of labor among the servants or dependents, whose life is spent in maintaining the honor of the gentleman of leisure. So that, while one group produces goods for him, another group, usually headed by the wife or chief, consumes for him in conspicuous leisure, thereby putting in evidence his ability to sustain large pecuniary damage without impairing his superior opulence. This somewhat idealized and diagrammatic outline of the development and nature of domestic service comes nearest being true for that cultural stage which has here been named the quasi-peaceful stage of industry. At this stage, personal service first rises to the position of an economic institution, and it is at this stage that it occupies the largest place in the community's scheme of life. In the cultural sequence, the quasi-peaceful stage follows the predatory stage proper, the two being successive phases of barbarian life. Its characteristic feature is a formal observance of peace and order, at the same time that life at this stage still has too much of coercion and class antagonism to be called peaceful in the full sense of the word. For many purposes, and from another point of view than the economic one, it might as well be named the stage of status. The method of human relation during this stage, and the spiritual attitude of men at this level of culture, is well summed up under the term. But, as a descriptive term to characterize the prevailing methods of industry, as well as to indicate the trend of industrial development at this point in economic evolution, the term quasi-peaceful seems preferable. So far as concerns the communities of the Western culture, this phase of economic development probably lies in the past, except for a numerically small 
though very conspicuous, fraction of the community, in whom the habits of thought peculiar to the barbarian culture have suffered but a relatively slight disintegration. Personal service is still an element of great economic importance, especially as regards the distribution and consumption of goods. But its relative importance, even in this direction, is no doubt less than it once was. The best development of this vicarious leisure lies in the past, rather than in the present, and its best expression in the present is to be found in the scheme of life of the upper leisure class. To this class, the modern culture owes much in the way of the conservation of traditions, usages and habits of thought, which belong on a more archaic cultural plane, so far as regards their widest acceptance and their most effective development. In the modern industrial communities, the mechanical contrivances available for the comfort and convenience of everyday life are highly developed. So much so that body servants, or indeed domestic servants of any kind, would now scarcely be employed by anybody except on the ground of a canon of reputability carried over by tradition from earlier usage. The only exception would be servants employed to attend on the persons of the infirm and the feeble-minded. But such servants, properly, come under the head of trained nurses rather than under that of domestic servants, and they are, therefore, an apparent rather than a real exception to the rule. The proximate reason for keeping domestic servants, for instance, in the moderately well-to-do household of today, is ostensibly that the members of the household are unable, without discomfort, to compass the work required by such a modern establishment. And the reason for their being unable to accomplish it is, one, that they have too many social duties, and two, that the work to be done is too severe and that there is too much of it. These two reasons may be restated as follows. One, under the mandatory code of decency, the time and effort of the members of such a household are required to be ostensibly all spent in a performance of conspicuous leisure, in the way of calls, drives, clubs, sewing circles, sports, charity organizations, and other like social functions. Those persons whose time and energy are employed in these matters privately avow that all these observances, as well as the incidental attention to dress and other conspicuous consumption, are very irksome but altogether unavoidable. 2. Under the requirement of conspicuous consumption of goods, the apparatus of living has grown so elaborate and cumbrous in the way of dwellings, furniture, bric-a-brac, wardrobe and meals, that the consumers of these things cannot make way with them in the required manner without help. Personal contact with the hired persons, whose aid is called in to fulfill the routine of decency, is commonly distasteful to the occupants of the house, but their presence is endured and paid for, in order to delegate to them a share in this onerous consumption of household goods. The presence of domestic servants, and of the special class of body servants in an eminent degree, is a concession of physical comfort to the moral need of pecuniary decency. The largest manifestation of vicarious leisure in modern life is made up of what are called domestic duties. These duties are fast becoming a species of services performed not so much for the individual behoof of the head of the household, as for the reputability of the household taken as a corporate unit, a group of which the housewife is a member on a footing of ostensible equality. 
as fast as the household for which they are performed departs from its archaic basis of ownership marriage, these household duties, of course, tend to fall out of the category of vicarious leisure in the original sense, except so far as they are performed by hired servants. That is to say, since vicarious leisure is possible only on a basis of status or of hired service, the disappearance of the relation of status from human intercourse at any point carries with it the disappearance of vicarious leisure so far as regards that much of life. But it is to be added, in qualification of this qualification, that so long as the household subsists, even with a divided head, this class of non-productive labor performed for the sake of the household reputability must still be classed as vicarious leisure, although in a slightly altered sense. It is now leisure performed for the quasi-personal corporate household, instead of, as formerly, for the proprietary head of the household. End of chapter 3